0: Good morning. I appreciate those that have let out in our time of worship this morning. From our call to worship, through our singing, our playing, meditations and things, appreciate that so much. We are in a series of messages on famous people of the Bible. And so I want to ask you this question this morning. Have you ever tried to hide anything from God? And did it work? Well, of course not. God knows everything, sees everything. You cannot hide anything from God. You yourself can't hide from God. A good old, good old hymn book song, you cannot hide from God no matter what you do, no matter where you go, things like that. Can you deceive him? Can you pull the wool over his eyes? Can you, when you do something wrong, can you hide it? Can you cover it up? Last Sunday, we started talking about King David, looking at his life early on, actually before he became the king. Uh, God sent Samuel to anoint David as the next king of Israel, but he's he's not everybody's choice, probably. Certainly not who Samuel was going to choose. Samuel didn't see in David, evidently, what God saw. In David. But God chose a shepherd boy to be the king that Israel would need. Now, he didn't look presidential, probably coming in from the sheepfold or out in the fields where he was watching the flocks when Jesse sent for him, but he was faithful. God knew that David had the right heart. And Samuel missed it at first because what's he looking at? Well, the outside appearance. And God tells Samuel, don't look at how tall he is. Don't look at his stature. Don't don't look at, uh, think about the first impression that he makes. You're looking on the outside thing, Samuel. I'm looking inside on the heart. And when Jesse trotted out his first seven sons, the seven oldest boys, God said no to each one of them. But then when Samuel said, do you have anybody else? And they brought David in. God said, arise and anoint. This is the one. So Samuel missed it at first. His own father, Jesse, missed it, missed seeing that in David. And obviously his brothers missed it, even made fun of him and ridiculed him. That is until until he killed a giant by the name of Goliath. And maybe the only person who really saw in David what God saw in David was Jonathan, son of Saul who became David's lifelong friend until Jonathan died in a battle on Mount Gilboa. But I want to pick up David's story in 2 Samuel chapter 11. Moving ahead in time in his life, he's probably about 50 years old now. He's been on the throne for approximately 20 years. At this point in his life, David has distinguished himself as a a faithful shepherd and a fearless soldier. The Bible will call David a man after God's own heart. He was a composer of Psalms, a valiant soldier on the battlefield, and a leader that people loved and respected and followed. He has defeated that arch enemy, the Philistines. He has expanded the kingdom larger than what it's ever been. He has moved the capital to Jerusalem now. And this former shepherd boy is living in a palace. So it's a great time in David's life. Things have never gone better. 2 Samuel chapter 8, verse 15 says, David reigned over all Israel doing what was just and right for all the people. Now that's the kind of a national leader that you want, right? And that's the kind that people will follow and love. David had even extended kindness to Mephibosheth, a son, a crippled son of Jonathan. He had brought Mephibosheth to the palace and allowed him a seat at the king's table where he would eat meals, I would assume, with David. He even gave Mephibosheth property and provisions that would take care of him for the rest of his life. And so David was a great king. Had a good heart. The nation enjoyed a time of peace and prosperity that had never before been experienced among God's people. These were the glory days of the kingdom of Israel. He was prospering personally and professionally. But, but, you come to 2 Samuel chapter 11 and verse 1, and here we find recorded a seismic shift In David's life. And here begins an account of lust and adultery and murder and deception from the man after God's own heart. It's not a pretty time in David's life. And after he goes through this, he's going to encounter a lot of other trials in his life. And it all begins with these words, 2 Samuel 11, verse 1. In the spring, at the time when kings go off to war, David sent Joab out with the king's men and the whole Israelite army. They destroyed the Ammonites and besieged Rabah, but David remained in Jerusalem. Now, most of you have probably read and heard sermons about this part of David's life and the sin that he's about to commit. But even if you have heard this story before, I want you to listen to it again as if you're hearing it for the very first time. Because even after David commits multiple sins by what he does, I still want you to see that there's a beacon of hope, that God can bring that redemption that has been mentioned this morning, that God is an incredible God that loves us more than we can ever fully understand or appreciate. So we start with David's temptation. His temptation in verses 1 and 2. In the spring, at the time when kings go off to war, well, David sends Joab and the army of Israel out. They defeat the Ammonites. They besiege Rabah. But the verse ends how? But... David stayed in Jerusalem. He stayed in Jerusalem. Now this isn't the, the, the David that we know and love. I mean, this, this seems unusual. Because, I mean, when, when everybody else ran away from Goliath, what did David do? He ran towards him. He charged at Goliath with that sling shot in his hand. And he flung the stone into the forehead of the giant took him down, and then he took off his head with Goliath's own sword. David was someone that engaged life, someone who fought oppression and evil, someone that lived passionately. And yes, he composed music, he wrote lyrics and poetry, and he faithfully tended sheep and loved people, but he waged war fearlessly against Israel's enemies. And so in everything, David faced life with a fully alive heart. He was passionate about the things of God. But now, he's back in Jerusalem while he sent the army off to battle. Somehow in the midst of his successes, I don't know, maybe, maybe he's experiencing some kind of midlife crisis here But he's not where he should be. And he's not doing what he should be doing. It's the time when kings go off to war, it says. And David had been out in battle time after time after time. His his armies are out on the battlefield risking their lives, defending his kingdom and sweating and bleeding and maybe even dying. But where's the king? Where's the commander-in-chief? Where's David? the one that should be with his troops. He's back in Jerusalem. He's back home in the palace, taking a nap. Literally. He's asleep. He's taking a nap. Instead of being on the battlefield, he's in bed. He's not where he should be. He isn't doing what he should be doing. And the devil's just waiting for this moment. Folks, success can be dangerous. And no, the New Testament had been written yet, but the Apostle Paul writes in 1 Corinthians, the 10th chapter, and says, Let he that thinketh he standeth what? Take heed lest he fall. And David, David needs to hear something like that. 1 Peter 5:8 says, Be self-controlled and alert. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, looking for someone to devour. And he's ready to sink his teeth into David. So David. He's been taking a nap. He gets up from that nap in in the early hours of the evening, and he goes for a walk on his rooftop because they built their palaces and buildings with flat roofs with a parapet or whatever around it so you wouldn't fall off. And so he's up there, probably, most likely, the tallest building in Jerusalem. Jerusalem certainly one of the tallest. And he can look down on everything else and he can see everything that's going on. From his vantage point there in the city, he can look down and see the the, the visible symbols of his own success. The, the, The nation is united. The economy has been flourishing. His armies have been advancing. And this shepherd boy living in a palace now with people attending to his every need. So things are going good. But verse 2, from the roof, he saw a woman bathing. And the woman was very beautiful. Any problem with that? Any problem with having beautiful women? No. Any problem with a woman taking a bath? No. Any problem with a man accidentally seeing a woman taking a bath? No. No. This isn't the problem. Being tempted to sin is not a sin in and of itself. It's how we respond that matters. And in that moment, David was faced with the same question that we all have to answer from time to time. Will I look or will I leave? Will I look or will I leave? And David lingered too long. And his glance, his noticing it, turned into a gaze. A simple view turned into a sinful stare. And David didn't act quickly enough or decisively enough. He needed to be like Job. Job chapter 31 and verse 1. Job says, I've made a covenant with my eyes not to look lustfully at a woman. That was a decision that Job had made in his life. I'm not going to look lustfully at a woman. But David, David hadn't made that covenant. And he failed to walk away, and his lust took him further than he ever dreamed. usually does. It makes me a little bit suspicious, too, this whole account. I wonder if this was the first time David had ever noticed this going on? Is this the first time he ever took a walk up there and happened to glance down and see this particular woman bathing? Or is it possible, and I'm just speculating, is it possible that she had a routine and David knew the routine and he was up there at that particular time because he knew what would most likely take place? I don't know. I can't prove that. But nevertheless, David failed to walk away. 1 Corinthians 6.18 says, flee from sexual immorality. Flee from it. You don't run towards it. You don't attack it. You run away from it. You flee. 2 Timothy 2.22 counsels, flee youthful lusts. You can't trust lusts. You can't, you can't talk about it, debate it, or discuss it. You have to leave it. You have to run from it. You have to flee from it immediately, or it'll grab you by the throat, and it won't let you go until you've sinned. And that's what happens with David. James chapter 1, verse 14, Each one is tempted when by his own evil desire he's dragged away and enticed. Then after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it's full grown, gives birth to death. If only James had written that back in the time of David where he could have seen that. But David knows better. And all this happens because David's at the wrong place at the wrong time. But haven't we all been there? Haven't we all been at the wrong place at the wrong time? Doing what we ought not to do. Teenagers alone at home while the parents are gone. They're not going to be back for a while, do they? Sometimes do things they shouldn't do. A single adult maybe just goes into a bar just for a Coke. Kills some time before going home and winds up doing something they shouldn't do. Watching TV late at night, flipping through the channels to see something exciting or surfing the Internet for something pornographic. Or or let's, let's take a trip. In fact... I'm going to head out to Vegas for a good time because you know that what happens in Vegas stays in Vegas. Yeah, don't be naive. What happens in Vegas doesn't stay in Vegas. And Numbers 32 verse 23 says what? Be sure your sin will find you out. It will. But David put himself in a temptation situation. Don't do that. If you're tempted, leave. Don't stay around to look. David shouldn't have stayed. Instead of looking, he should have left. And by the way, the devil can never make you do something you don't want to do. This crowd will, will, will remember Flip Wilson. The devil made me do it, or however he said it, right? Yeah. If I do that in the next service, they won't have a clue what that is, all right? But the devil can't make you do it. You, are, you, can't, you can never make that excuse. That whenever you say that, that's not true. Paul writes, and I didn't put this one up on a slide, but I love that verse in 1 Corinthians 10, verse 13, that says, No temptation has overtaken you, but such as is common to man. And God's faithful. He'll not allow you to be tempted beyond what you're able, but will with the temptation provide a way of escape that you might be able to bear it, to endure it. So every time you're tempted, right beside it, God says, here's the way out. You choose. You yield to it, or you take the way of escape. We can never say the devil made us do it. 1 Corinthians 6, 18-20, flee from sexual immorality. Do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit? You're not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your body. But David... There in verse 2, from the roof he saw a woman bathing, and the woman was very beautiful. And instead of leaving, he kept looking. Now, I don't want to let Bathsheba completely off the hook here, because I think she's an accomplice to all this as well. Bathsheba was careless and foolish. She was lacking in the usual Hebrew modesty here, or she certainly would have been, wouldn't have been taking a bath in a place where she knew that she could be overlooked or viewed upon. But from her rooftop, I wonder if she hadn't often looked up at the royal palace. I wonder if she, she, if she just had to know that she could be seen, possibly by the king. And was she wanting to be noticed in that way? Most all of you know Ken Eidelman, former president at Ozark, and Ken uh, has preached here in this building before. But Ken said this about Bathsheba, and I quote She was careless and indiscreet and immodest. And I am amazed at how many women out there behave the same way these days. She knows she's attractive, she knows she can be seen. Let's be honest here. She's a bit of an exhibitionist, but hey, It's not her problem if David can't control himself. Or is it? He goes on to say, Parents, set an example. Teach modesty. Dads and moms, step up and be vigilant about the dress of your daughters. Teach them to dress not for the attention of boys, but for the approval of their heavenly Father. Don't let your daughter become a temptress by her clothes being too tight or her neckline too low or her hemline too high. Some parents are weary or so insecure, so intimidated by their own kids or so seduced by the culture, they won't fight for their children's virtue. I'm saying this is a hill worth dying on. And after all, which is worse, putting yourself in the place of being tempted or being the temptress? Is there really a difference? End of quote. I think Ken makes a good point there. So we can see David's temptation. But notice next, the deception that takes place on the part of David. I mean, he's the king, and he takes charge. He asserts control. He pulls the trigger on his lust. He yields to the lure of the sexual sin. And David is the one that initiates this liaison. And he's so caught up in in the moment that he misses a warning that could have helped him avoid the whole mess. Because when he inquires as to who this woman is, someone tells him that that's Bathsheba. She's the daughter of Eliam and the wife of Uriah the Hittite. And Uriah the Hittite was one of David's mighty men. That's listed in the scriptures. And even after David finds out that she's another man's wife, he sends for her, and she comes to him. And he's gone too far to turn back now, evidently, in his thinking. And so she comes into the king's chambers, and they enjoy a night of passion and unrestrained romance. And when I say that I'm not letting Bathsheba completely off the hook, another reason is because the Bible gives no indication, there is no mention of Scripture, that Bathsheba resisted this or refused this. I mean, after all, she's the one that's taking a bath on the roof. Well, after this takes place, she goes back home. And then in verse 5, it says, The woman conceived and sent word to David, saying, I am pregnant. but the last part of the last verse of this chapter reminds us that your sin will find you out because someone else saw it. God did. And it says that the thing that David had done was evil in the sight or displeased the Lord. So now David faces a decision. Will he repent before God, or will he try to hide his sin? Same decision that we all have to to come to, all right, when, when we've sinned against God. Am I going to try to hide it and cover it up, or am I going to come clean and confess it to God? And sadly, David did what most people do. He tried to hide it and deny it. So he comes up with a plan after he finds out that she's conceived and is with child, And he sends a message to Joab up on the front lines of the battle where they're besieging the city of Rabah and says, send Uriah back from the front lines. So Uriah comes back and David has him come in and make some small talk, how are things going at the battle? Uh, Do you have enough supplies? Okay, what about the strategy? Is it working? Okay, do you think the city's going to fall? or Whatever they talk about. And then finally he tells Uriah, Okay, well, go home and wash your feet. Which is their way of saying, go home and spend the night. Because the last thing you did at night was you washed your feet before you went to bed. They didn't have shoes and socks like we have, so that was their way of saying, go home and spend the night. But Uriah is a man of integrity and doesn't completely obey the king. He leaves the king's presence, but he spends the night with the king's servants. You see, David had thought... If he goes home and spends the night with his wife, then the inevitable will take place. All right. The romance will take place. And then he goes back to the battle. When he comes back home and sees she's with child, the time frame will be blurred in his mind and he won't know but what that child didn't is. But but Uriah does not go home. He spends the night with the servants of the king. When David finds out, calls him in the next day and says, hey, I freed you up to go home to spend time at your house with your wife. And. Uriah says, hey, my commander, my lord Joab and the armies of Israel are out there fighting the fight. And they're washing their socks out. Well, they don't have socks, but, you know, they're, they're experiencing the rigors of war. Am I going to go home and spend the night with my wife and my home as your soul lives? I won't do this thing. And David says, well, spend another day. And David comes up with a second plan. Let's get Uriah drunk. He throws some kind of a party or whatever and Uriah's there and he has given orders to his servants every time Uriah's glass is empty, fill it up. He's hoping to get Uriah drunk so he'll take leave of his senses. He won't know where he spent the night and so then the first plan David had will ultimately work. But again, Uriah gets drunk but not that drunk and spends the night with the servants of the king. So David has to take extreme measures He comes up with plan C, which is foolproof. Plan C is he writes out Uriah's death sentence, folds it up, hands it to Uriah, who like a faithful soldier does not read what is in it. He carries it to Joab. Joab reads the following. Put Uriah in the front lines of the battle. When the battle draws up fierce against you, withdraw from around him so he'll be struck down and die. And Joab sees what David wants. He's been in the habit of doing some dirty deeds for David in the past. This is just another in the chain. Long story short, he carries it out. Uriah struck down and dies. Joab sends a servant back to give the news to David. And David very hypocritically says, well, that's the way the battle goes. The sword devours one as well as another. Tell Joab to reinforce the front lines and go back and take the city. And that's when the chapter concludes with but the thing that David had done was evil in the sight of the Lord. So, David has been tempted. He's yielded to the temptation. He's tried to cover up his sin. He has tried to deceive others. He has murdered Deception is a dangerous cancer that can only be treated by repentance and confession. And David hasn't done that yet. What's interesting is later on after the event and after David has repented, he writes in Psalm 32 beginning in verse 2, that blessed is the man in whose spirit there is no deceit. (laughs) Well, he had had a lot of deceit in his. When I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night, your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was sapped as in the heat of summer. Then I acknowledged my sin to you and did not cover up my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord. Rejoice in the Lord and be glad, you righteous, seeing all you who are upright in heart. So David gives us an idea of what he was going through while he was trying to cover up his sin. But after Uriah's wife heard about her husband's death, she mourned for him, and after her time of mourning was over, David had her brought to the palace. She became his wife and bore him a son. And her mourning may have been over, but the sorrow was just beginning because now it's time for God to intervene. And we come to chapter 12 and verse 1. The Lord sent Nathan... To David. Nathan the prophet. I would not have wanted to have been Nathan and taken this message, this little story to David. Kings were more powerful than prophets. David could have him killed. Nevertheless, Nathan goes to David with a parable, a story. And not just some pointless, warm, fuzzy, feel good story. This is an indictment against David from the God of heaven. And the point would be impossible to miss. So the story goes this way that Nathan tells him. There were two men that lived in a city, a rich man and a poor man. rich man had a great many, lots of flocks and herds. But the poor man had one little ewe lamb. Well, the rich man had a guest stop by and instead of taking from his many sheep and cows and things from his own, he stole that poor man's little ewe lamb and cooked it as a meal for his guest. Well, in verse 5, it says, David burned with anger against the man and said to Nathan, As surely as the Lord lives, the man who did this deserves to die. He must pay for that lamb four times over because he did such a thing and had no pity. And verse 7 Nathan looks David in the eye and says, You're the man, David. Thus saith the Lord. David had been in denial for months, but now he has to finally face his sin. And you get down to verse 13, and it says, Then David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. Confession brings cleansing and forgiveness, but it cannot undo or stop the consequences. Now let me just give you some facts about sin. The first being, sin always deceives. Sin always deceives. It promises pleasure, but it delivers pain. It was certainly that way with Adam and Eve in the garden, Right? Promise pleasure and good things. Why, if you eat the fruit of that tree, you'll be like God. You know, right from wrong and good, good from evil. And all, I mean, this is a good thing. Well, sin brings forth death. And they found that out. So sin always deceives. Secondly, sin always destroys. Always destroys. David received God's forgiveness, but he also received the due bill for his sin long time ago, I don't know who the original preacher was that preached this. that sin will take you, always takes you further than you want to go, keeps you longer than you want to stay, and costs you more than you want to pay. And it certainly did with David. In fact, when you think about sin always destroys the son born to Bathsheba as a result of this sin. What happened? The child died. Later on, David's son, Amnon, raped his sister, Tamar. After that, Absalom killed his brother, Amnon, for raping Tamar. And after that, Absalom tried to steal the kingdom away from David. And David had to flee for a while, but Absalom wound up being killed by Joab. Even though the king had said, if you see my son Absalom, take it easy with my son. But Joab killed him. What's David going to say to Joab at that point after he had had Joab arrange for Uriah's murder? He couldn't say anything, couldn't do a thing to him. Sin always destroys, and sometimes when we sin, we set unstoppable consequences in motion. A third thing sin will always be discovered. <laughs> Be sure your sin will find you out. Job, chapter 12, verse 22 says, God reveals the deep things of darkness and brings deep shadows into the light. He does. Someone's going to talk. An email will be discovered. A photo will be found. A text will be read. But sin will always be discovered. And then fourthly, here's the good news. Sin's already been defeated. Sin has already been defeated. Nathan replied here, the Lord has taken away your sin. And those words in the original Hebrew mean to cross over or to pass on. God has passed your sin on. And Nathan says to David, and you are not going to die. Why would he say that? What was the penalty for What David had done under the law of Moses. Stoning to death. Both he and Bathsheba should have been stoned to death. But Nathan specifically says, You are not going to die. The Lord has passed on your sin. Has taken away your sin. Who did God pass on the penalty of David's sin to? Jesus. Absolutely. To Jesus every sin that has ever been forgiven before Jesus during the time of Jesus after Jesus every sin that's ever been forgiven has been forgiven through him because ultimately Jesus died on the cross in David's place to pay for that sin and while this story focuses on David's sin and the terrible consequences that came as a result of that one bad choice This whole story ends up really being a story of grace and redemption. David would be forgiven. He would recover. He would go on to write the majority of the Psalms, one of which he wrote very quickly after this encounter with Nathan, the 51st Psalm. Be gracious to me, O Lord, according to the greatness of your loving kindness. Blot out my transgressions. Wash me from my iniquity. All of that. Just read the 51st Psalm because it's very specific in how David was trying to repent after Nathan encountered him and confronted him with his sin. David's leadership as a king would become the gold standard by which other kings could be judged in comparison. And David ultimately would provide the lineage for Jesus, who was born in Bethlehem, the city of David. So what's the lesson in this for us this morning? Well, David's sin is no greater than your sin or my sin. Right? No greater than any of the sins we've committed. Ours just haven't been recorded in the Bible for the whole world to read for hundreds and thousands of years. And we're grateful for that, aren't we? And every one of us deserves God's judgment because we have all sinned. We all deserve death. But the best part of the story is God determined that he would pass on the penalty for our sin to Jesus. And praise God for that. Jesus could die in my place and your place because he never committed a sin. He was the perfect Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. And we just need to come clean and confess and repent. Are you trying to hide any sin in your life? It won't work. God knows, and he'll bring it to you someday. Be sure your sin will find you out, so why not just come clean and repent and experience the work of redemption that God can do in your life. And he can do that today. If you have a decision you need to make, you can meet me down front as we stand and sing.